0: To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha or visit Wisdom.com, where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap.
1: Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. In this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. In this program, we're exploring and investigating volumes 2 through 13 of this book series. And now we're on volume 5 of this book series. We're finishing up this volume today by covering chapters 41 through 53. This is the complete end of this book volume five the first stage of enlightenment stream enter and then next week we'll be starting with the natural law of gamma which is volume six all of these books are accessible at no cost by going to the website buddhadailywisdom.com And there you'll see a link for free books, and you can download the books, you can take them to go print them, you can order printed copies if you like through Amazon, and then you can actually be studying these chapters throughout the week and then join us to have any kind of discussion around the teachings of the Buddha. And we typically will cover 10 chapters a week. So next week with the Natural Law of Gamma, we'll be in chapters one through 10. And while this may sound like a lot for a particular book, these chapters are actually quite short. Some of the words of the Buddha are just kind of like a couple of paragraphs, and then my explanation after that. And by learning with the words of the Buddha, then you can understand the true teachings of a Buddha of how to progress to enlightenment, because it's only when you study with the teachings of an actual Buddha, that they will ultimately lead to enlightenment. If teachings have been changed or modified or adjusted or adapted in any way by someone other than a Buddha, then these teachings aren't going to necessarily lead to enlightenment because they're not from an actual Buddha, someone who is a discoverer, a declarer, or an originator of this path to enlightenment like Gautama Buddha was. So in this program, we really focus on studying the words of the Buddha so that you can learn, reflect, and practice them and see the truth for yourself that indeed they do lead to enlightenment as the condition of the mind gradually improves getting closer to this Peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Typically, we start this class with a meditation, but today we're not going to do that because we have about 13 chapters to study, and some of them are quite long. So, we'd like to use all the time in today's class in order to ensure that we have the time we need to explore and investigate. teachings of the Buddha in each one of these chapters. So the way that this class works is I just kind of turn it over to the moderators and you, the students, where a student will read a particular chapter and I'll display it on the screen. So if you haven't studied these prior, it's okay because I'll be displaying them and a student will read the chapter or I'll read it. And then I'll teach what i would like to share perhaps what i've already shared in the book or maybe some things above and beyond what i shared in the book and then i'll open up to any questions where students might have interest to clarify any questions or maybe even confirm their understanding of certain aspects of the teachings the way that you ask questions is you put those into facebook youtube or zoom and the moderators will see that and be able to be sure your question gets Ask during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether this is your first time joining us or you've been joining us many times, welcome to this Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. I'm going to switch over to sharing the chapters of the text, which as I mentioned is volume five. We're in chapter 41 to start off with, and we're going to just progress through our class today, reading each one of these chapters and then teaching and then opening up to any questions that you might have on this specific chapter. So I'll turn things over to all of you guys.
2: Sure.
3: Let's go to Miranda for chapter 41.
2: Death at the Door of the Deathless, Enlightenment. It is possible, Sunakata, that some monk here might think thus. Cripping has been called an arrow by the ascetic the poisonous unwholesome mental quality of ignorance unknowing of true reality is spread about by desire craving and anger that arrow of craving has been removed from me the poisonous unwholesome mental quality of ignorance unknowing of true reality has been expelled i am one who is completely intent on nibbana, enlightenment because he falsely thinks of himself thus he might pursue those things that are unsuitable for one completely intent on nibbana. He might pursue the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye. He might pursue unsuitable sounds with the ear, unsuitable odors with the nose, unsuitable flavors with the tongue, unsuitable physical objects with the body, or unsuitable mental objects with the mind. When he pursues the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye, he might pursue unsuitable sounds with the ear unsuitable odors with the nose, unsuitable flavors with the tongue, unsuitable physical objects with the body, or unsuitable mental objects with the mind, craving invades his mind. With his mind invaded by craving, he would incur death or deadly pain. Suppose, Sunapada, a man were wounded by an arrow, thickly smeared with poison, and his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives brought a surgeon the surgeon would cut around the opening of the wound with a knife and then would probe for the arrow with a probe then he would pull out the arrow and would expel the poisonous substance leaving a trace of it behind knowing that a trace was left behind he would say good man the arrow has been pulled out from you the poisonous substance has been expelled without a trace with a trace left behind but it is incapable of harming you eat only suitable food Do not eat unsuitable food or else the wound may accumulate pus and blood. From time to time, wash the wound and from time to time, anoint its opening so that pus and blood do not cover the opening of the wound. Do not walk around in the wind and sun or else dust and dirt may infect the opening of the wound. Take care of your wound, good man, and see to it that the wound heals. The man would think, the arrow has been pulled out for me. The poisonous substance has been expelled with no trace left behind, and it is incapable of harming me. He would eat unsuitable food, and the wound would accumulate pus and blood. He would not wash the wound from time to time, nor would he anoint its opening from time to time, and pus and blood would cover the opening of the wound. He would walk around in the wind and the sun, and the dust and the dirt, would infect the opening of the wound. He would not take care of his wound, nor would he see to it that the wound heals. Then, both because he does what is unsuitable and because of the foul poisonous substance substance had been expected with a trace left behind, the wound would swell and with its swelling he would incur death or deadly pain. So too, Sunakata, it is possible that some monk here might think thus. Craving has been called an arrow by the ascetic. The poisonous unwholesome mental quality of ignorance, unknowing of true reality, is spread about by desire, craving, and anger. That arrow of craving has been removed from me. The poisonous unwholesome mental quality of ignorance, unknowing of true reality, has been expelled. I am completely intent upon Nirvana because he falsely thinks himself thus. He might pursue those things that are unsuitable for one completely intent on nibbana, enlightenment. He might pursue the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye. He might pursue unsuitable sounds with the ear, unsuitable odors with the nose, unsuitable flavors with the tongue, unsuitable physical objects with the body, or unsuitable mental objects with the mind. When he pursues the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye, he might pursue unsuitable sounds with the ear unsuitable odors with the nose unsuitable flavors with the tongue unsuitable physical objects with the body or unsuitable mental objects with the mind craving invades his mind with his mind invaded by craving, craving he would incur death or deadly pain for its death in the discipline of the noble ones when one abandons the training and reverts to the low life and it is deadly pain when one carries out some defiled conduct.
1: Thank you, Miranda. This very interesting chapter here that the Buddha is sharing this discourse and relating this arrow that's been shot into somebody as craving the actual arrow itself. But it's carrying this poison of ignorance or unknowing a true reality. We refer to craving, anger, and ignorance as the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots. And that's what's afflicting the unenlightened mind and keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. And it's through this training of the Buddhas that we transform these three unwholesome roots into the wholesome roots of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. Those are the exact opposites of craving, anger, and ignorance. And the Buddha describes here an individual who's been shot with an arrow they've been attended to by a doctor, but there's still kind of a residual amount of this little bit of poison, and it requires some care and attention in order for this individual to fully heal this wound. So one of the ways that the Buddha connects this to his teachings is essentially if somebody has removed a certain amount of these three unwholesome roots or these three poisons from the mind, they've removed a bit of craving, anger, and ignorance, and they're experiencing some beneficial results from that. But there is still a bit of craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind. And if somebody kind of thinks that, okay, I'm healed, I'm fixed, and they don't remain attentive, they don't remain determined, dedicated, and diligent to continuing to practice the teachings, then that's a situation where someone's then going to continue to do unwholesome things because they're not attending to the mind they're not following up the training they're kind of have become complacent to a certain degree because they feel like okay a a large amount of this poison has been removed from the mind i'm experiencing all this reduction of discontentedness and let me kind of revel in that let me kind of find happiness in that let me now just kind of blow off the rest of this path, even though the person isn't all the way to enlightenment yet. So what he's encouraging here is to not treat this path to enlightenment in the same way that somebody would treat this wound, that once the doctor has done their work, that they then become complacent and don't care for the wound. Instead, as you're doing this work, even when there's just a residual amount of craving, anger, and ignorance still in the mind, remain determined, dedicated, and diligent, don't allow complacency to come into the mind, and that's how you ultimately get to enlightenment. That's kind of the overall that the Buddha's talking about. And he goes in and talks about, you know, someone who maybe thinks that they're already enlightened, or someone who's close to enlightenment, they might actually pursue these central desires. These unsuitable forms with the eye, or unsuitable sounds with the ear, or odors with the nose, flavors with the tongue, physical objects with the body, or unsuitable mental objects with the mind. This is part of central desire. So the Buddha is explaining here you know, don't allow these things to invade the mind. Even when you know that you've significantly reduced a large amount of discontentedness and you're observing a remarkable improvements to the condition of the mind, having experienced the jhanas and moving into that first stage of enlightenment, don't allow that improvement to allow the mind to become complacent. Stay dedicated. Stay diligent. This is why I share with students to never convince the mind that you're actually enlightened and we talked just recently in class when Nick was here about not even convincing yourself that you've attained the first stage of enlightenment, because it's very dangerous for the mind to convince itself that it's attained these things. Because typically what will happen is once the mind convinces itself that it's in the jhanas or in any of these stages of enlightenment, it may or may not be in those stages. It may or may not be experiencing the jhanas or any of those first stages of enlightenment because self-assessment is fraught with errors. The ego is typically there all the way towards the end, trying to convince you that you're more enlightened than you really are. So someone might think that they're actually enlightened and then go around and now be influenced by what the Buddha is describing here as unsuitable Forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. And now this person is now going back to unwholesome conduct because they thought they were enlightened, but yet they're truly not. And this is where the danger comes in because someone can kind of slip up on their practice rather than remaining determined, dedicated and diligent. Because once you kind of convince the mind that you've attained the jhanas or you've attained any of these stages of enlightenment, there's a tendency for arrogance or pride or measuring and comparing to come into the mind. There's a tendency for complacency to come into the mind. So a wise practitioner, in my opinion, would never convince themselves that they've attained anything at all even when they've observed that they don't have discontentedness for a year or two or three. And it can be pretty much said, okay, this person has attained enlightenment. And other people might observe that about you. But if you never convince the mind of that and you just continue to stay dedicated, determined and diligent, continuing to ensure that you're practicing the teachings really well, then you won't slip into any complacency or arrogance or pride. So that would be the way that I would share that the Buddha is explaining here is to ensure that the mind's always determined, dedicated, and diligent, never slipping back in your practice. But of course, as you make your way towards enlightenment, there's going to be times where you do have missteps and you kind of fall down or you slip up and trip over your feet and that's where you just kind of observe what went wrong okay you got frustrated okay you got angry okay you yelled at somebody okay well let's let's look at that and make sure that you understand the wisdom that you need in order to improve and then improve it and continue to walk forward so that would be somebody who's remaining dedicated and diligent But someone who maybe is kind of assuming that they've attained something or assuming they're enlightened, when they have those little mishaps or those little missteps, they won't be attentive to try to figure out what happened and then improve their practice. They'll just kind of, ah, that's okay. You know, I got a little frustrated. It's no big deal. Or, oh, I kind of talked in an unwholesome way there, but no big deal. I'm already enlightened. Well, if someone's speaking unwholesome, they're not enlightened, right? So if somebody kind of, doesn't stay attentive to their practice, these little things can kind of slip in. So you'd like to not allow that to happen and just remain diligent to your practice, much like the is describing here, that someone should remain diligent to attending to their wound, even though the doctor has already done a whole lot of work. Any questions on this chapter?
3: Yes, teacher. What should, what may a practitioner do when this uh, arrogance or pride uh, arises
1: into the mind. Yeah, the best thing to do is observe it and then look at your improvements and how you can improve. And if you're not understanding how to do that, that's where you reach out to your teacher and seek guidance. You're going to see as part of our chapters today, the Buddha explains that when somebody has a mishap or a misstep or they kind of aren't practicing the teachings and they kind of slip up, he uses the word, I think, confess it to your teacher which is essentially go to your teacher and seek guidance and let your teacher know like, okay, I got really angry in this situation. You know, here's what happened. And here's what I think caused that anger. You know, do you have any other guidance for me, teacher? So you do the same thing with conceits or arrogance or pride is that you, where you observe that arising, you cut it off and let it go as the way that the Buddha teaches as part of the Eightfold Path, But then if you're struggling with observing how to improve it beyond that, then that's where you reach out to your teacher and you say, hey, I feel like there was some arrogance or some pride or conceit that arose here. And I would like to get your opinion on this. And what are your thoughts? And then you kind of share this with your teacher. And then you also share your thoughts as well of what you've come to understand. And then if there's anything that you're missing, your teacher can just help you with the things you're missing. Instead of, Here's this problem, teacher. You solve it. It's okay. Here's the issue. Here's the challenge, teacher. Here's what I think are the challenges that I'm facing. And here's how I think I can improve it. What else do you have to share here? So this kind of helps the teacher see what wisdom you have on board by you sharing what your thoughts are they can then see what wisdom you have on board and then just fill in the gaps and fill in the holes to help you beyond where you currently are. And that's how you gain more wisdom and that's how you improve your practice. Whereas if we walk around thinking that we're already enlightened or... You know, we're already in the first stage of enlightenment and we're so great and we're so wonderful. Now, the person isn't really looking and attending to the things they need to attend to, and they're not maybe reaching out to their teacher in situations where they should.
3: Thanks, teacher. No more questions.
1: All right. So we'll move on to chapter 42.
3: In Abuds of the Noble Ones, the mind is liberated by wisdom. Monks, there are these 10 Abuds of the Noble Ones in which the Noble Ones reside in the past, present, or future. What in here a monk has abandoned five factors, possesses six factors, has a single guard and four supports, has eliminated personal beliefs, totally renounced its seeking, purified his intentions, calmed bodily activity, and become well liberated in mind and well liberated by wisdom. One, and how has a monk abandoned five factors. Here a monk has abandoned sensual desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness, and worry, and doubt. It is in this way that a monk has abandoned five factors. Two, and how does a monk possesses six factors? Here, having seen a form with the eye, a monk is neither happy or saddened, but resides equanimous, mindful, and clearly comprehending. Having heard the sound with the ear, having smelled an odor with the nose, having experienced the flavor with the tongue, having touched the physical object with the body, having recognized a mental object with the mind, a monk is neither happy nor saddened, but resides equanimous, mindful, and clearly comprehending. It is in this way that a monk possesses six factors. Three, and how does a monk have a single guard? Here, a monk possesses a mind guarded by mindfulness. It is in this way that a monk has a single guard. Four. And how does a monk have four supports? Here, having reflected, a monk uses some things, patiently, endures other things, avoids still other things, and dispels still other things. It is in this way that a monk has four supports. Five. And how has a monk eliminated personal beliefs? Here, whatever ordinary person believes may be held by ordinary ascetics and Brahman. That is, the world is eternal, or the world is not eternal. The world is finite, or the world is infinite. The soul and the body are the same, or the soul is one thing and the body another. The Tathagata exists after death, or The Tathagata does not exist after death, or the Tathagata both exists and does not exist after death, or the Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist after death. A monk has discarded and dispelled them all, given them up, rejected them, let go of them, abandoned and relinquished them. It is in this way that a monk has eliminated personal beliefs. Six, and how has a monk totally renounced seeking? Here, a monk has abandoned the search for sensual pleasures and the search for existence and has eliminated the search for a spiritual life. It is in this way that a monk has totally renounced seeking. Seven, and how has a monk purified his intentions? Here, a monk has abandoned sensual intention, intention of goodwill and intention of harming, it is in this way that a monk has purified his intentions. Eight, and how has a monk come bodily activity? Here, with the abandon of pleasure and pain and with the previous fading away of former gladness and sadness, a monk enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. It is in this way that a monk has come with bodily activity. 9. And how is a monk well liberated mind? Here, a monk's mind is liberated from craving, anger, and ignorance, and knowing of true reality. It is in this way that a monk is well liberated mind. 10. And how is a monk well liberated by wisdom? Here, a monk understands I have abandoned craving, cut it off at the root. Made it like a palm stump, obliterated it so that it is no more subject to future rising. I have abandoned anger, cut it off at the root. Made it like a palm stump, obliterated it so that it is no more subject to future rising. Abandoned ignorance and knowing of true reality, cut it off at the root. Made it like a palm stump, obliterated it so that it is no more subject to future rising. It is in this way that a monk is well liberated by wisdom. Monks, whether noble ones in the past reside in noble abodes, all reside in these same ten noble abodes. Whatever noble ones in the future will reside in noble abodes, all will reside in these same ten noble abodes. Whatever noble ones at present reside in noble abodes, all reside in these same ten noble abodes. These are the ten epochs of the Noble Ones, in which the Noble Ones reside in the past, present, or future.
1: Thank you, Basum. So here, the Buddha is giving essentially ten aspects of one's practice that leads to enlightenment, and someone who is enlightened will have these ten aspects of their practice. These aren't the only ten, but these are ten really important ones. So we'll go through these so that you understand them. The first one here is, and how is a monk abandon five factors? Here he's talking about what we call the five hindrances, abandoning sensual desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness and worry, and doubt. These also show up as part of the ten fetters, except for complacency. All the rest of them are part of the ten fetters, but we describe these in a separate aspect, and we... Did, call them the five hindrances, because these are the five things that will hinder somebody from attaining enlightenment. There's other hindrances as well. The Buddha groups them in multiple ways. The number one hindrance to enlightenment is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. We learned that in this book in chapter 14, when we discuss dependent origination, that's the number one hindrance to enlightenment is the unknowing of true reality or ignorance. But then below that is this grouping of five central desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness, and worry, and doubt. And then below this, there's actually more. It expands out to like 16 and then 32. But these are kind of the top line ones to be aware of and ensure that you're working to eliminate these as part of your practice. And as we get to the question section, if you have a question on any of those five, we can talk about that. Then here, number two, the six factors. He's talking about the sixth sense basis, ensuring that you're neither happy nor saddened based on things that are experienced through the sixth sense basis. Because if there's this conditioned happiness or this conditioned sadness, then the mind isn't going to experience enlightenment because it still has central desire. So we still experience the enjoyment and the joy when the mind is enlightened, but it's not conditioned on things that are coming through the sixth sense basis. So if you see something with the eye and the mind is enlightened, then you might be like, oh wow, that's really beautiful. It's so amazing to see that view or that car, it's so beautiful. But the mind won't cling to it and the mind won't crave for it. The mind won't have this mental longing and strong eagerness for it, to acquire it, and the mind won't cling to it. So that then when you're no longer seeing that same view, the mind's not like, oh, that view is so beautiful. Why do we have to leave? This would be the sadness, right? But somebody whose mind is enlightened, they wouldn't experience that conditioned happiness like, oh, wow, amazing. Look at this view. I could just stand here forever and see every and enjoy you know, every last moment standing in this view and never wanting to leave. And then when the person does need to leave because of impermanence, that's where the sadness comes in. And there's these six sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind are these six sense bases where the mind will have this craving, desire, attachment, longing for agreeable things through these sense bases because it wants those pleasant feelings. And then when it can't get them or those pleasant feelings are now over, Then the mind moves to the painful feeling. So, what the Buddha is saying here is someone whose mind is liberated has eliminated this craving and clinging through these six sense bases. Then, number three is the single guard. The Buddha talks about mindfulness or awareness of mind being always useful. This is part of the eight path. It's part of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's many parts of his teachings where he talks about mindfulness, because what a mindfulness is, is it's awareness of mind. And specifically, it's those four foundations of mindfulness, of bodily sensations and being aware when any discontent feelings are starting to arise, you should observe the bodily sensations and be able to cut it off and let it go there. That would be ideal. Then those discontentness, if it arises and it's not caught at the bodily sensations, it becomes feelings in the mind that can be cut off there. If it's not cut off there, it then affects the condition of the mind for multiple hours or days or weeks. And then if it's not cut off there, it then starts forming mental objects, which are more deeply rooted in the mind and much harder to let go of so the guard of the mind here is mindfulness and having these four foundations of mindfulness if you've developed those in your practice then you'll be able to see this discontentedness coming earlier and earlier in this life cycle of discontentedness as bodily sensations feelings condition of mind and mental objects and you can back this up and you can cut it off and let it go therefore you're guarding the mind because if you can cut off any arising discontentedness at the bodily sensations and it never gets to be feelings in the mind then it never affects the condition of the mind and never forms mental objects you've just saved yourself a whole lot of trouble but that needs to be developed and once you develop and you're practicing that during all your waking hours that you now have this single guard and you can cut off discontentedness and eventually after you do that enough times over a consistent period of time, discontentedness will never arise because you've eliminated the craving, desire, attachment that's causing it to arise. But you have to be diligent enough to have this mindfulness and cut it off at the bodily sensations as this discontentedness is arising to get to the point where you've eliminated and eradicated and obliterated the discontentedness and the craving that is causing that discontentedness. Then there's these four supports that the Buddha talks about. That here there are certain things that, as you progress in your practice, you're going to use certain things. This is where he says you're going to use some things. But then there's certain things that you need to patiently endure. And then there's some things that you're going to completely avoid. And then there's certain things that dispels other things. So examples of this one might be where you use certain things. Where let's just say you're on a boat and the engine is really loud, and initially it's like, oh, that kind of like maybe is bothering the mind. Well, now you might decide to use that loud engine on a boat to kind of train the mind to no longer crave for pleasant, agreeable things through the ears. Instead, you use that opportunity as a way to train the mind to become more peaceful in that situation. And then you might kind of patiently kind of endure that sound that's coming from the boat and kind of train the mind to just patiently endure that. And then there are certain things that you might avoid, like bars or nightlife. If you know that that's not something that you're interested in, this is something that you might just completely decide to avoid. Because if you went into that environment, maybe there's a tendency for you to drink alcohol or uh, use drugs or get in fights and arguments. So we might decide to avoid those things. And then certain things that you dispel, some other things, like certain things that you're thinking, certain things that are in the mind that are currently there, you might dispel them and kind of get rid of them. So this is all what the Buddha is saying. These are supports to your practice, to the attainment of enlightenment. And then eliminating personal beliefs. This is where a practitioner who's on this path you may end up gradually eliminating your personal beliefs and you would need to actually do that in order to get to enlightenment because you shouldn't be believing anything about this path and you shouldn't really be believing anything in life either. Instead, what a practitioner on this path gets really good at is understanding some information, reflecting on that, and then practicing in a way to be able to see the truth for yourself. Where in the past, before we were on this path, we might have just had a whole bunch of beliefs about a lot of things in the world, and the Buddha gives an example of some of those here. But then he talks about having discarded and dispelled these things that now what you do is through the process of learning this path you learn the buddhist teachings you reflect on them and you practice to see the truth for yourself and then these qualities that you're cultivating in your life practice related to the buddhist teachings you can do that with all things in your life whereas if somebody comes to you and tells you something about something that's going on if you haven't seen the evidence for yourself, you're not interested in just believing that. You listen, you ask questions, you learn, you understand, then you maybe reflect on what's been told and what's been shared with you. And then you find a way to determine the truth for yourself so that then you're no longer experiencing these beliefs, but instead you're always operating on truth. You're interested in only operating based on the truth and that's what you gain as part of this path is learning how to do that with the buddhist teachings but then you can apply those same abilities and same aspects of your life practice to other parts of your life then the buddha talks about renouncing seeking here somebody in order to get to enlightenment they would need to eliminate the seeking of sensual pleasures and that's a gradual thing because You don't actually eliminate sensual desire until you get to the third stage of enlightenment, but gradually this whole path is working towards helping you learn how to eliminate this seeking or searching for sensual pleasures. And then also searching for existence, craving to have existence in the world, or searching for this personal existence view that we talk about as the first fetter. That somebody whose mind is moving towards enlightenment, they would no longer be searching for this personal existence view because they would have realized non-self and know that it's not there. They would no longer be searching and craving and holding on to existence in this world because they know that that's a source of discontentment and they would let that go. And then the Buddha also talks about here that someone has eliminated the search for a spiritual life. Because if you've learned these teachings to a certain degree and you've eliminated doubt about the teachings in the Buddhist teachings, then you would no longer be in search of a spiritual life because you've already got one. You already know the teachings of the Buddha. You're progressing on this path. You've experienced those preliminary phases that we call the jhanas the mind is moving into this first stage of enlightenment, you're experiencing the benefits of having built up your practice to that point that you're no longer in search of a spiritual life because you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're on the right path. So somebody will no longer be seeking that spiritual life because they've already got one. Then the Buddha talks here in number seven about right intention, which is part of the Eightfold Path. It's the second step of the Eightfold Path. And he's just essentially reiterating what's described there in the Eightfold Path where someone has abandoned this intention for central desires, or the Buddha calls it in the Eightfold Path, the intention of renunciation, the intention of letting go, abandoning central intention. He talks about abandoning the intention of ill will, and he talks about abandoning the intention of harming. So he talks about practicing renunciation, or practicing non-ill will, which is loving-kindness, and practicing harmlessness, or the intention of not causing harm. And that's part of this path. Number eight is calming bodily activity. This is where he talks about moving into the fourth jhana. So somebody who's going to attain enlightenment, they would have already experienced the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. So here he's just explaining the fourth jhana, as he explains it as part of the full path and what somebody will experience as part of that fourth jhana. And calming the bodily activity is like the mind is no longer overactive, so therefore the bodily activity is no longer overactive. If you've ever experienced for yourself or you've been around others where their body is just moving really, really fast, their hand movements, their gestures, their bodily movements are very quick and very rapid moving from one thing to the next someone who's moved into these jhanas and beyond their bodily activity would be calmed where there wouldn't be these harsh aggressive movements in one direction or another everything would be kind of calmed instilled number nine the buddha is talking about liberation of the mind from craving anger and ignorance or this unknowing of true reality If somebody gets to the point where they eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, the mind is enlightened. They've eliminated all craving, anger, and ignorance. That means there are no more fetters in the mind. The mind isn't liberated. And that's what he's talking about here, that the mind is well liberated by eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance. In volume one, I dedicate a full chapter to explaining how to do that. And you'll see this come up at different parts of the Buddhist teachings where he's explaining to be sure that you're working to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance because that's how you liberate the mind from discontentedness. You get the freedom from these strong feelings by eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance. And then how do you do that? This is number 10. Well liberated by wisdom. You need to cultivate this wisdom of how to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance. And he describes it here just basically as cutting it off at the root, making it like a palm stump, obliterating it so there's no more subject to future arising. So you need to get to the point where you eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, and it's completely gone, where it will no longer arise again. And the way that you do that is through wisdom, through working with a teacher, through being guided in the Buddhist teachings. You don't believe the teachings, but instead you learn them reflect on them and then practice them to see the truth for yourself and through that independent verification of the truth then you can gain this wisdom and accumulate more and more wisdom of how to eliminate craving anger and ignorance and that's how the mind ultimately gets liberated is by the wisdom because prior to being on this path we didn't understand what caused things like frustration or irritation or sadness or guilt or shame or fear we didn't have that wisdom to understand what caused it? But as you learn things like the three universal truths and the four noble truths and the Eightfold Path and others, gradually you learn the wisdom that helps you to unravel the mind and accumulate this wisdom to directly cut off craving, anger, and ignorance through your practice of meditation, but then also all the other aspects of the Eightfold Path that we practice on a daily basis. So wherever you see these, arising in the mind you cut them off and let them go in daily life and this is why we have breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity training the mind to let go and then the buddha just sums it up here saying all the noble ones all the enlightened beings in the past present and future in order to attain enlightenment they would need to have these 10 noble abodes question on any of these a question understand teacher all right so, we'll move to the next chapter, which is chapter 43.
3: One who abandons the things that should be abandoned by seeing. Monks, a well-taught noble disciple who has regard for noble ones and is skilled and dis- disciplined in their teachings, who has regard for true men and is skilled and disciplined in their teachings, understands what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention since that is so he does not attend to those things unfit for attention and he attends to those things fit for attention what are the things unfit for attention that he does not attend to they are things such that when he attends to them the unarisen taint of sensual desire arises in him and the arisen taint of sensual desire increases. The unarisen taint of existence, personal existence view, arises in him. And the arisen taint of existence, personal existence view, increases. The unarisen taint of ignorance and knowing of true reality arises in him. And the arisen taint of ignorance and knowing of true reality increases. These are the things unfit for attention that he does not attend to. And what are the things fit for attention that he attends to? They are things such that when he attends to them, the unarisen taint of sensual desire does not arise in him, and the arisen taint of sensual desire is abandoned. The unarisen taint of existence does not arise in him, and the arisen taint of existence is abandoned. The unarisen taint of ignorance does not arise in him and the the arisen taint of ignorance is abandoned. These are the things fit for attention that he attends to. By not attending to things unfit for attention and by attending to things fit for attention, unarisen tints do not arise in him and arisen tints are abandoned. He attends wisely. This is discontentedness. He attends wisely. This is the cause of discontentedness. He attends wisely. This is the elimination of discontentedness. He attends wisely. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. When he attends wisely in this way, three fetters are abandoned in him personal existence view, doubt, and wrong grasp of behavior and observances. These are called the tents that should be abandoned by seeing.
1: Thank you, Basam. So whenever you see the Buddha talking about the taints or the defilements or pollution or fetters, these are all essentially the same thing. The taints are this pollution of mind that's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. And what he's giving here in this discourse is he's talking about certain things that you should not do and certain things that you should do. So this first part that he's talking about is he's saying, okay, if you're involved in activities, where you see central desire, personal existence view, or ignorance arising and it's increasing, then he's saying you shouldn't do those things. You should avoid those things. And then the second part, he says, okay, if you're involved in things where you're observing that the taint of central desire, personal existence view, and ignorance is decreasing and and getting eliminated, then you should continue to do those things. So examples here would be, Let's say that you observe that when you're going out, you go out places, you go to certain restaurants and you're observing that you're drinking alcohol and you're gossiping and you're doing unwholesome things with people. The Buddha is saying, okay, if you're seeing this central desire, you're seeing this personal existence, you're seeing this ignorance arise, then these are things that you shouldn't do. You should avoid doing these things and not attend to them is what he's saying is these things are unfit for attention and do not attend to them. What he's saying is do not do those things that you see arising central desire, personal existence view, and ignorance. And then if there are certain things that you're doing that you're observing, like, wow, this is really helping. This is really improving. This is helping to diminish and eliminate central desire, personal existence view, and ignorance. And he's saying, okay, you should eliminate these fetters and these taints by continuing to do these activities. And he picks these particular fetters because they lead to the elimination of personal existence view, doubt, and wrong grasp of behavior and observances. Because remember, those are the three fetters that need to be eliminated in order to become a stream enter. And this book is all about stream entry. So there are certain things that we do to eliminate these specific fetters that I've talked about at different times and we can revisit today if you guys would like but these other fetters are connected to these three fetters so for example if you are working to eliminate central desire the fetter of central desire and you work to cut back your craving more and more and more and more this is actually going to help you to eliminate doubt about the teachings because doubt about the teachings comes about because You don't know the Buddhist teachings and you haven't seen the Buddhist teachings. You haven't seen any benefit from them. But if you're eliminating central desire, your discontentedness is going to be gradually diminishing and extinguishing. And this is where you will eliminate doubt about the teachings through actually eliminating central desire and working to eliminate central desire. So a stream enter has not yet eliminated central desire but you can work on it a bit and start working to eliminate craving, desire, attachment through the six senses. And as you do, this will help you eliminate doubt. And then he talks about eliminating the taint of existence or personal existence view. So there's certain things that we do to eliminate that. And I talked about that in last Sunday's talk in the group learning program about how to actually do that. And then this taint or this fetter of ignorance If you're working on this taint of ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, this helps you to eliminate wrong grasp of behavior and observances. It also helps you to eliminate the fetter or the taint of doubt about the teachings. And it also helps you to eliminate personal existence view. So by working on those three, you're actually also working on these three that it takes in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment what the buddha suggests here in terms of paying close attention to is the four noble truths that's what he's discussing here when he says this is discontentedness the cause the elimination and the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness and someone who's working on these will ultimately eliminate these three fetters as well personal existence view doubt and wrong grasp of behavior and observances questions on this chapter of course
3: you understand teacher all right chapter 44. Think yeah
1: if you would be kind teacher to read this one <laughs> sure so this one is titled right views of various kinds and this is a teaching that was delivered by the buddha but it's Sariputta who's actually sharing this teaching to help us understand what the buddha said because the teachings weren't written down until after the death of the buddha so the Venerable Sariputta, one of the Buddha's closest, closest, closest students who actually attained enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha, is here recounting what he actually taught. Sariputta actually attained enlightenment and died during the lifetime of the Buddha. It wasn't until the Buddha died that they wrote down his teachings. So this is somebody else recounting a discourse that Sariputta gave during his life that's what this is. So here it says, when friends, a noble disciple understands the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, in that way he is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence in the teachings, and has arrived at these true teachings. And what, friends, is the unwholesome, What is the root of the unwholesome and what is the wholesome and what is the root of the wholesome? So here Sariputta is going to give us what is this unwholesome and what is the wholesome. And here he's referring mostly to the five precepts. There's other things in here too. But here he says killing living beings is unwholesome. Taking what is not given is unwholesome. Misconduct in central pleasures is unwholesome false speech is unwholesome, malicious speech is unwholesome, harsh speech is unwholesome, gossip is unwholesome, craving is unwholesome, ill will is unwholesome, wrong view or ignorance is unwholesome. This is called the unwholesome. So this is essentially taken right from the Eightfold Path, because in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, someone would be needing to practice the Eightfold Path, and then the Eightfold Path. Connecting into that is the five precepts and helping you to more deeply understand the teachings of these through a more elaborate discussion in the five precepts. And what is the root of the unwholesome? Craving is the root of the unwholesome. Anger is the root of the unwholesome. Ignorance of the unknowing of true reality is the root of the unwholesome. This is called the root of the unwholesome. And the Buddha shares this as well when he talks about the cause of all unwholesome gamma the results of our unwholesome decisions is unwholesome gamma and he talks about craving anger and ignorance is the way that we produce unwholesome results in our life so this matches up directly to what the buddha said as well and what is the wholesome abstention from killing living beings is wholesome abstention from taking what is not given is wholesome Abstention from misconduct in central pleasures is wholesome. Abstention from false speech is wholesome. Abstention from malicious speech is wholesome. Abstention from harsh speech is wholesome. Abstention from gossip is wholesome. Non-craving or generosity is wholesome. Non-ill will or loving kindness is wholesome. Right view or wisdom is wholesome. This is called wholesome. And the Buddha talks about these things as well, as you see here in the next one, and what is the root of the unwholesome? Here it's generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, which are the direct opposites of the unwholesome. This is how you transform the mind from craving, anger, and ignorance through practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And the whole path helps you to understand how to do that more and more. And then sariputta is here describing more of this And he's going through certain aspects of teachings. Some of them are related to dependent origination that a practitioner needs to understand in order to fully understand how to practice and make their way to enlightenment. Here, nutriment, we can talk about that because we haven't talked about that in this program yet. Nutriment are the things that kind of create the continuation of existence. So here they're describing what are the four aspects of nutriment. Well, physical food is a nutriment that continues existence. And then there's contact, contact through the six sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, physical objects with the body, and then mental objects, mental volition or intention behind certain actions, and then consciousness. So craving is essentially going to arise and that's what's actually arising this nutriment or this continuation of existence. And then Sariputta here, because of what he learned from the Buddha, is explaining with the elimination of craving, there is this elimination of nutriment. So if we eliminate craving, desire, attachment in the mind, then there isn't this continuation of existence in the cycle of rebirth. And the way to do that is through the Eightfold Path. The entire eightfold path is what's guiding a practitioner to eliminate this craving so that it no longer leads to continuous rebirth and there's details here that are repeated over and over as part of this discourse talking about the four noble truths here which you guys have learned before talking about aging and death which is part of the dependent origination birth existence clinging Craving, feeling, contact, the six sense bases, name and form, consciousness, volitional formations or choices and decisions, and then ignorance itself, the unknowing of true reality, and then the taints or the fetters, right? This is leading to how to eliminate all of these things. Questions on this chapter?
3: Yes, teacher. How to eliminate ignorance? So, eliminating craving is by a breathing mindfulness meditation, a love and kindness meditation for eliminating anger. How to eliminate ignorance?
1: Ignorance is through learning, reflecting, and practicing these teachings. That you don't believe the teachings, but you independently verify them and see the truth for yourself. That when you see the four noble truths, you learn them. You understand what leads to discontentedness through learning it then you reflect on it and you kind of think about past experiences you've had with things like anger and frustration and other discontent feelings. And then you observe like, oh yeah, it is craving. I'm causing my own discontentedness here. And then you learn and you observe through your reflection that when you let go of those cravings, that the mind then became peaceful. And then the path to enlightenment, the eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. So then you start practicing this, that you start working on eliminating craving, desire, attachment, and then you start seeing your discontentedness diminish the more and more you practice the eightfold path. And this is helping you through learning, reflecting, and practice that you acquire this wisdom that you see that the teachings are actually working to improve the condition of the mind. And this is where you then have more and more wisdom about these natural laws of existence. And that's what antidotes and transforms this ignorance. Thanks,
3: sure. teacher. No more questions.
1: All right, so we move on to chapter 45. Here, whoever's going to read this, I would like to just preface this with understand here when the Buddha talks about factors for stream entry. I've mentioned in the past how we should never look at the Buddhist teachings in isolation. So this isn't the Buddha saying these are the only factors for stream entry. These are some of the factors. And there's multiple factors that determine if somebody has attained the first stage of enlightenment. So it's important to never look at the Buddhist teachings in isolation, but look at the totality of them and all the different discourses that he's giving that are helping us to see how to attain this first stage of enlightenment.
3: Well, factors for stream entry, first discourse. Then the venerable Sariputta approached the perfectly lightened one, paid homage, respect to him and sat down to one side. The perfectly lightened one then said to him, Sariputta, this is said, a factor for stream entry, a factor for stream entry. What now Sariputta is a factor for stream entry? One, association with wholesome persons, venerable sayer. Is a factor for stream entry. 2. Hearing the true teachings is a factor for stream entry. 3. Careful attention is a factor for stream entry. 4. Practice in accordance with the teachings is a factor for stream entry. Good, good, Sariputta. Association with wholesome persons, Sariputta, is a factor for stream entry. Hearing the true teachings is a factor for stream entry. Careful attention is a factor for stream entry. Practice in accordance with the teachings is a factor for stream entry.
1: Okay, thank you, Basum. So here, these are pretty self-explanatory. That the Buddha teaches at different places about having association and cultivating relationships with people who are conducting themselves in wholesome ways. Because if we do the opposite, then our mind has a tendency to be influenced by unwholesome aspects of life so an unwholesome conduct so by associating with wholesome persons we then ensure that we have wholesome influences around us hearing the true teachings this is really really important this is why we base our practice in the words of the buddha is that it's important to hear the true teachings and know what the true teachings are those are the teachings that are going to lead to enlightenment is those teachings that are shared by an actual buddha So if we try to branch off and learn all these different things that came after the life of a Buddha, then those are modifications and changes. They're not the true teachings, so they're not going to lead to this improved condition of the mind in these four stages of enlightenment. This careful attention, this is like determination, dedication, and diligence to your practice. That's the careful attention. And then practice in accordance with the teachings, that's if you've understood and you have access to these true teachings and then you have this diligence to practice now you're practicing and developing your practice based on the actual true teachings and you see that yes you're practicing in terms of these four noble truths the eightfold path the five precepts and others this is how you move to the first stage of enlightenment a stream entry and beyond questions on this chapter
3: no question understand teacher
1: all right, I was just taking a note here to. I would like to go back and check something. All right, chapter 46.
3: Factors for Stream Entry, Second Discourse. The noble disciple householder who possesses four things is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the nether world, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as his destination. What for? Here, householders. One, a noble disciple possesses Confirmed confidence in the teach in the Buddha. Thus, the perfectly enlightened one is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate, knower of the worlds, unsurpassed leader of persons, to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the enlightened one, the fortunate one. Two, he possesses confirmed confidence in the teachings. Thus, the teachings are well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come unseen, applicable, to be personally experienced by the wise. Three, he possesses confirmed confidence in the community. Thus, the community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is practicing the wholesome way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals, this community of the perfect, enlightened one's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectable, respectful salutation, the answer, unsurpassed field of merit for the world. Four, he resides at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, one devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. A noble disciple who possesses these four things as a stream enterer, no longer bound to the neither world, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as his destination.
1: Thank you, Basam. We've talked about all of these things in this book as we've gone through the classes. Here, the Buddha is talking about the three aspects of the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. This is called the triple gem or the triple jewel. You would need to have confidence or develop confidence in the Buddha as you progress on this path that he was a Buddha, that he was perfectly enlightened. And the way that you get to that is by learning and practicing his teachings and seeing that the condition of the mind is improving. You would need to have access to his teachings or confidence in these teachings that they're leading to enlightenment, and you would need to be part of a community of practitioners. This is the triple gem or the triple jewel. We've talked about these in detail at other times in this book. Here, the fourth one, sometimes he talks about virtuous behavior here. But here he's choosing to put in here about being generous and eliminating selfishness from the mind. In this book series, book 13 is completely devoted to generosity and eliminating selfishness from the mind because this is how the mind holds on and has craving, desire, attachment wanting things for ourselves and not being interested to share and give to others. So a person who's progressing to the first stage of enlightenment and ultimately to enlightenment in the fourth stage is going to be practicing generosity, giving and sharing their time, effort, energy and resources with others along the way. And then, of course, he shares in this particular teaching about how the stream enter is no longer going to be reborn into the lower realms the netherworld of hell, the animal realm, or the realm of afflicted spirits, because they are fixed in destination. That's where he talks about that once someone attains stream entry, you're going to attain enlightenment in no more than seven rebirths, a maximum of seven rebirths, because enlightenment is your destination. Questions on this chapter?
3: No question, time.
1: Okay, I had a feeling this one is something that we've covered fairly detailed in different times in this book. So here's a third discourse with the factors of stream entry. Yes, it would
3: be kind of you, teacher, if you could read this next two chapters.
1: Sure. So here the Buddha is saying, I will teach you, Brahmin householders, a teaching exposition applicable to oneself. Listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. In what householders, is the teaching's exposition applicable to oneself? Here, householders, a noble disciple reflects thus, I am one who aspires to live, who does not aspire to die. I have the objective of peacefulness and am enthusiastic to discontentedness. So here's what he's saying is somebody's kind of set their objective to the attaining of enlightenment, and I'm no longer interested in discontentedness. I'm not interested. I'm enthusiastic. I'm, I kind of almost despise discontentedness of conditioned pleasant feelings, these conditioned painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And he's saying this person who aspires to live this peaceful life, not aspiring to die, will set their objective towards peacefulness. I'm just going to kind of skip over some things here it's a fairly long chapter. This person will abstain from the destruction of life and encourage others to do the same in certain situations and speak praise of abstinence of the destruction of life. So a person who is progressing towards peacefulness will know that that killing living beings is not something that is going to bring this peacefulness, but instead by eliminating the killing of other beings it gives other beings the freedom of fear that they no longer need to live in fear that they're going to actually be killed because you've chosen as an individual to no longer destroy life or kill beings and the buddha gives these three different aspects of ways that our bodily conduct is purified here the buddha talks about theft and you know stealing or taking what is given that a person who aspires for this first stage of enlightenment and ultimately enlightenment itself will not be stealing and taking things from people. And that's what this second one is talking about. The third one here, the Buddha is talking about sexual misconduct, which is that third precept and also shows up on the Eightfold Path is right action, saying someone who's progressing to attain stream entry and beyond will no longer be causing harm through their Uh, sexual contact the fourth one here is related to speech and the buddha talks about this as part of right speech in the Eightfold path no longer lying and having false speech and this is part of the fourth precept as part of the five precepts the fourth precept is related to not lying and having the ability to speak the truth and being not a deceiver of the world and being trustworthy and dependable The fifth one here talks about divisive speech, where if someone is interested in dividing people and kind of saying something to one person to make them mad at somebody else and dividing people, this isn't a person who is moving towards enlightenment. This is someone who's in the darkness. This is someone who's dividing people and taking people away the buddha talks in other parts of his teachings that someone who's moving towards enlightenment will be interested in bringing people together and having people come together in harmony as part of community so a person who is moving towards stream entry and towards enlightenment will have eliminated this divisive speech being interested in dividing people Here, the sixth one, he's talking about harsh speech, right? Someone would be interested in ensuring that they're cultivating the gentle speech. And you might not be able to do that right now, but you're working towards that. And the more that you eliminate craving, desire, attachment, you'll notice that you'll find it easier to speak gentle. As long as there's craving, anger, and ignorance there, there's going to be some harsh speech. But as you diminish craving, diminish anger, diminish ignorance. Maybe you haven't eliminated it 100% because the mind isn't enlightened. But as you diminish those things, you should start noticing that all your relationships, you're more and more capable of speaking gently in all your relationships, no longer speaking harshly. Frivolous speech or idle chatter. This is where if somebody just, you know, yada, 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 just speaking unbeneficial, unpurposeful speech. And this is typically due to craving, desire, attachment. If Someone has this craving to speak and they want somebody to know everything that's in their mind or there's this arrogance or this pride there might be this frivolous speech and this idle chatter that doesn't have any purpose or benefit to other people and if you're diminishing your craving then you should start noticing that you're starting to be able to speak in more purposeful and beneficial ways that's not just beneficial to you but beneficial to others as well and that's what the buddha is talking about here So the Buddha talks about all these seven wholesome qualities that are admirable states, right? These are very admirable that he's talking about. Any questions on this particular chapter? No questions at this time. All right, so I'm gonna go into chapter 48, which is another discourse on factors of stream entry. It's this fourth discourse. So the four factors of stream entry in 10 modes this one's quite extensive he's here this particular teaching is saraputa if i remember correctly goes and visits a household practitioner who's sick and who's ill gravely ill gravely sick and saraputa goes and visits this individual and they're in pain they're sick and saraputa kind of talks with this individual and kind of helping them to understand where they are with the teachings. And he kind of assesses where this person is in terms of their practice. And Sariputta observes that this person does not have distrust towards the Buddha, that they have confidence, confirmed confidence in the Buddha. And Sariputta says, you know, this is really good for your practice. And then he says, you know, this practitioner doesn't have distrust towards the teachings you have this confirmed confidence in the teachings and this is very good for your practice. And you have this confirmed confidence towards the community of practitioners. And this is also very good for your practice. And then there's more here that he's talking about in terms of his uh, moral conduct and what he's practicing in terms of his bodily actions, his verbal actions and his mental actions. then he goes through in assessing all aspects of the tenfold path we typically think of the eightfold path but here Sariputta is talking about the tenfold path because it's the tenfold path that an enlightened being is going to be actually practicing so he goes through and assesses that this person does not have wrong view wrong intention wrong speech wrong action wrong livelihood wrong effort wrong mindfulness wrong concentration but also doesn't have wrong wisdom or wrong liberation so essentially sariputta is getting to a point where he's assessing that this person is potentially enlightened or actually is enlightened and then as the Saraputta talks to this individual he's you know saying may your pain essentially subside now that you understand that you're close to enlightenment may your pain essentially subside And he delivers this verse here where he says, When one has confidence in the Tathagata, that's the Buddha, unshakable and well-established and wholesome conduct built on virtue or virtuous behavior, dear to the noble ones and praised. When one has confidence in the community and view that has been purified, that's right view, they say that one is not poor, that one's life is not useless. So, here, kind of reframing what it means to be poor and impoverished is not based on material objects, but it's based on the wisdom and the confidence that you have in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. By one having that, Sariputta is saying you're not poor. Therefore, the person of intelligence or wisdom, remembering the Buddha's teachings, should be devoted to confidence and virtue this virtuous behavior, to confidence and vision of the teachings. And then after having visited this person, Sariputta makes his way back to the Buddha. And Ananda and and the Buddha and Sariputta are there and kind of recounting what uh, Sariputta had discussed. And the Buddha says here, you know, Sariputta is wise, Ananda. Sariputta has great wisdom. In so far as he can analyze the four factors of stream entry in the 10 modes. The 10 modes are the 10 fold path and the 10 aspects of the path of what would lead to enlightenment. So the Buddha's sharing here that his close student Sariputta is very wise because it takes a lot of wisdom to get to the point where you can actually assess whether somebody's actually practicing each aspect of the path to enlightenment. Questions on this particular chapter?
3: Yes, teacher. Do you consider practicing right wisdom means necessarily practicing these teachings?
1: Uh, what teachings?
3: In the teaching of the Buddha.
1: Yes, if you have right wisdom, which is the ninth step of the tenfold path, then you will have fully eradicated ignorance or the unknowing of true reality that you will be able to deeply understand the teachings. You've already understood them. You're practicing them very closely. You can speak about them with ease with other people. If anybody should question you or ask you questions about the teachings, if you have right wisdom, you'd be able to explain them with clarity, with preciseness, and conciseness to the point where... Uh, you would be able to dispel all confusion about the teachings because you yourself have dispelled all confusion about the teachings. If you have right wisdom, you are no longer confused about the Buddhist teachings and every aspect of his teachings makes perfect sense to you because you've deeply investigated them to learn, reflect, and practice. And you've improved the condition of the mind where now the mind is enlightened, no longer experiencing discontentedness. So you can explain the teachings With ease, and that's what would be considered right wisdom.
3: Thanks, teacher. No more questions.
1: All right, so let's go to chapter 49.
3: The benefit of these four things, monks, these four things, when developed and cultivated, lead to the realization of the fruit of stream entry. What for? One, association with wholesome persons, two, hearing the true teachings. Three, careful attention. Four, practice in accordance with the the teachings. These four things, when developed and cultivated, lead to the realization of the fruit of of stream entry. Monks, these four things, when developed and cultivated, lead to the realization of the fruit of one's returner, the fruit of non-returner, the fruit of arahantship, obtaining of wisdom leads to the growth of wisdom lead to the expansion of wisdom, lead to the greatness of wisdom, lead to the extensiveness of wisdom Lead to vastness of wisdom, depth of wisdom, state of unequalled wisdom, state of breadth of wisdom state of abundance of wisdom, state of quickness of wisdom. State of beyond, say, of wisdom. State of joyousness of wisdom. State of swiftness of wisdom. Penetrativeness of wisdom. What for? A, um, yes, what for? Association with, uh, with wholesome persons, hearing the true teachings, careful attention, practice in accordance with the teachings. These four things, when developed and cultivated, lead to penetrativeness of
1: wisdom. All right. Thank you, Bassem. So if you guys haven't understood this yet, which I have a feeling you have, is the Buddha is always mentioning wisdom, 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 right? It's always about wisdom. The reason why is because as you saw in dependent origination, it's ignorance, the unknowing of true reality that keeps the mind in the unenlightened state. That is the primary thing that's keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state and then this cycle of rebirth. So everything that he's sharing is coming back to wisdom, 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 because that is the antidote that transforms the ignorance to this improved condition of mind, which is wisdom. And that helps to unravel everything else that puts in motion everything else. So the Buddha is saying here that association with wholesome people, hearing the true teachings, this careful attention or this diligence this determination and dedication this practice in accordance with the teachings this is what leads to wisdom right and then it, that's also what leads to the four stages of enlightenment stream entry once returner non-returner and utter huntship questions on this chapter
3: No question this time
1: all right so we'll move into chapter 50.
3: one who is a trainee and what monks is a method by means of which a monk who is a trainee standing on the plane of a trini, understands, I am a trainee. Here, monks, a monk who is a trainee understands as it really is. This is discontentedness. He understands as it really is. This is the cause of discontentedness. He understands as it really is. This is the elimination of discontentedness. He understands as it really is this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness this is a method by means of which a monk who is a trainee standing on the plane of a trainee understands i am a trainee again monks a monk who is a trainee considers thus is there outside here another ascetic or brahman who teaches teachings so real true actual as the perfectly enlightened one does he understands thus, there is no other ascetic or Brahman outside here who teaches teachings so real, true, actual, as a perfectly learned one does. This too is a method by means of which a monk who is a trainee, standing on the plane of a trainee, understands I am a trainee. Again monks, a monk who is a trainee, understands the five spiritual faculties, the faculty of, of confidence, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, the faculty of wisdom. He does not yet have direct experience of their destination, their culmination, their fruit, their final goal. But having pierced it through with wisdom, he sees This too is a method by means of which a monk who is a trainee standing on the plane of a trainee understands
1: I am a trainee. All right, thank you, Basam. So, here the Buddha is talking about someone who essentially starts to first become a student of his, a trainee, someone who's just starting out on the path. And maybe they've been studying for three months or six months or a year, who knows? He doesn't give any kind of time frame for it. But someone who's really just getting started, that this trainee understands the Four Noble Truths. That's what this first part here is, where he's discussing this. He says, okay, if someone's truly a trainee and ready to truly be trained, then they're going to understand the Four Noble Truths. That's the beginning part of their training. And then having understood those Four Noble Truths, then this person would understand that there is no other teaching so real, true, and actual as the Buddhas, the perfectly enlightened ones, because you've seen the truth for yourself through exploring those four noble truths which other teachers during the lifetime of the buddha weren't teaching they weren't teaching those same things so these other aesthetics who were coming in to learn with the buddha having been exposed to the four noble truths and the way that he teaches them they would be able to see clearly aha now i understand i'm having this breakthrough to understand what's causing discontentedness and now i can actually solve it so the buddha is saying that there's no other teachings and there's no other method of teaching that a person who's a true trainee would kind of seek out because they would understand that it's these teachings and the Buddha himself who is leading them to enlightenment because they see the truth through these four noble truths. And they would start to understand these five spiritual faculties, What a faculty is, is having the ability and interest of cultivating these things. It doesn't mean that you've actually cultivated them yet, but you actually have the ability and the interest to cultivate confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And I go through in the explanation here and talk about each one of these and what each one of these are. Because in order to progress, you would need to start developing these faculties, because this is what's going to help continue to propel you through the Eightfold Path and through all the other teachings, is having confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, the community, your individual teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. The faculty of energy is from the seven factors of enlightenment. This is having enthusiasm and motivation and being willing to actually apply your effort and energy towards actually progressing on this path. Mindfulness is that awareness of mind. Concentration is singleness of mind. And then the ability and interest to cultivate wisdom. If you weren't interested in cultivating wisdom, there's just no way you're going to progress on this path. So someone would need to have this interest and this ability to cultivate wisdom. This sentence here at the end of this paragraph, the Buddha is essentially saying that A trainee has not yet experienced the destination of where these things lead to, but they will at least have pierced it enough through wisdom that they can see where it's headed. So a person who's a trainee that the Buddha considers a trainee, they would not yet have attained the final goal of enlightenment and the final destination of enlightenment but they will have at least learned enough and investigated the teachings enough that they have acquired enough wisdom that they can see that this path is indeed leading towards the elimination of discontentedness into enlightenment. And the Buddha says, okay, if somebody has developed this to this degree, then they can consider themselves a trainee. Because if you can imagine when the Buddha was teaching, you know, he had his very, very close students that were really close to him and they were learning, you know, every time he spoke, they probably were interested in what he had to say. And then there were people who were learning pretty close, but, you know, they're kind of maybe one foot in and one foot out. And then there were people who were just kind of like passerbys, people who weren't Really dedicated to learning with him, but they're like, "Oh, this guy is giving a talk. Let me see what he has to say." So there's these three kind of groupings of people: people who were super dedicated, people who were kind of seeing the truth to a certain degree, but not yet quite fully dedicated, and then there were just kind of these passerbys. And the Buddha only had a certain amount of time to spend with various people in his life to help them develop and cultivate the teachings. And if somebody was just a passerby, okay, he's still going to teach that person. He's still going to help them, but they're not quite as dedicated. And he wouldn't necessarily consider that person a trainee because they're just like a passerby. But if they've really penetrated and broke through the Four Noble Truths and they have these other five spiritual faculties that the Buddha is talking about, then the Buddha is saying, okay, this person is a true trainee. This person is really interested in attaining enlightenment because they've penetrated the Four Noble Truths and they have these five spiritual faculties to be able to develop confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So the Buddha is helping you here to see what qualities of mind you need to cultivate is be sure you've penetrated the four noble truths and be sure that you are cultivating and have the interest and ability to cultivate these five spiritual faculties questions on this chapter
3: yes teacher how to arise energy in the mind when there is laziness or complacency in the mind
1: yeah so as part of the seven factors of enlightenment the buddha gives the tools of when the mind is sluggish that you practice investigation of the teachings, and then that leads to energy, and then that leads to joy. Those are the three factors that you practice when the mind is sluggish. So by coming to classes like this, by opening up a book, by doing things that are investigating the teachings, when the mind is complacent, the mind wants to not do these things. The mind doesn't want to pick up a book. The mind doesn't want to come to class. The mind is complacent and sluggish so you've got to transform that and say no 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 the mind wants to just sit here and do nothing let me put my effort even if you pick up the book for five minutes or three minutes or you just listen to a podcast or watch a youtube video or you attend class or whatever it is even if it's just for a few minutes that's more than what you did previously so you gradually build up this interest to investigate the teachings that's what ultimately leads to energy, and then that leads to joy.
3: Sometimes, when having laziness or complacency in some certain situations, one feels that uh, a, there is no enthusiasm to continue practicing or continue arising the energy. So, do you consider feeling in one situation is the end of the uh, journey? Uh,
1: say that. Say that last part again.
3: One field to practice uh, energy or uh, motivation to uh, walk this path in certain situations, is this the end of the journey?
1: If somebody feels a lack of motivation, that's impermanent. They can transform that. So if you've been practicing for six months, you've been really dedicated to learning and you're kind of feeling your energy dropping off then maybe what you need to do is take a break for a week or two or three and maybe just practice what you currently have learned so far for the last three months or the last six months. But don't allow that break of learning to become, you know, six months of no learning. Right. So you're learning on this path. It's not just always reading. It's not always listening to a podcast. It's not always listening to a YouTube video. You need to do a certain amount of coming to class and learning. But then there's also might be periods where you step away for a few weeks and practice what it is that you've learned so far. And while you're practicing those teachings, you're observing what's happening in your daily life. You're observing that, yeah, when I use the five factors of well-spoken speech, it's working and I'm seeing my relationships are blossoming. Or when I'm practicing loving kindness meditation and I've got more politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect in the way that I interact with people, it's actually helping me to have better relationships with people. So you can arise this energy through not just looking at the resources to investigate the teachings, but also through practicing on a daily basis and seeing that as part of developing your practice. That sometimes we feel like if we don't have our nose in a book, we're not practicing. But you need to kind of go through periods where you ramp up your learning through going to classes, reading books, listening to podcasts, YouTube videos, things like this. And then you need to go through periods where you're actually taking that learning that you've done and put it into practice so that you can see the truth for yourself that it's actually working. And then circle back and now start reading some more, start listening to podcasts more, start going to classes, do that for a period of time, build up your practice and now maybe you step away for a week or two or three or however long and you start practicing what you have learned there. But don't allow yourself to get to the point where there's complacency that you're not circling back to continue to investigate more and learn more because that's that one that we started off with where the mind becomes complacent, where there's still some craving anger, and ignorance in there, where maybe you go through these periods of investigation and practice that you experience some diminishing of discontentedness and then the mind's in a pretty you know peaceful state you're just experiencing discontentedness occasionally and maybe you don't have the motivation anymore to go back and kind of completely eliminate all craving anger and ignorance you're kind of accepted that maybe once a month you're going to be discontent for 10 minutes and you just kind of allow that to exist in the mind what that teaching that the Buddha was talking about with the wound and attending to the wound is be sure that you don't just accept that 10 minutes of discontentedness once a month, for example, and you're just kind of complacent with that. Ensure that you keep learning and keep practicing how to completely eliminate all discontentness from the mind. Because if you allow even a slight amount of discontentedness in the mind, the mind is not yet enlightened, And that means they're still craving anger and ignorance, which means there's still going to be rebirth at the end of this life.
3: Thanks, teacher. No more questions.
1: All right. So chapter
3: 51. Virtue lower than the stream enterer that does not lead to bad destinations. One who does not go to bad destinations, first discourse. Here, Mahanama. Some person does not possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha the teachings and the community. He is not one of joyous wisdom, nor of swift wisdom, and he has not attained liberation. However, he has these five things, the faculty of confidence, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, the faculty of wisdom. And the teachings proclaimed by the Tathagata are understood by him after being pondered to a sufficient degree with wisdom. This person, too, Mahanama, is one who does not go to hell, the animal realm, or the realm of afflicted spirits, to the plane of misery, the bad destination, the nether world. One who does not go to bad destinations, second discourse. Here, Mahanama, some person does not possess confirmed confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. He is not one of joyous wisdom, nor of swift wisdom, and he has not attained liberation. However, he has these five things: the faculty of confidence, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, the faculty of wisdom, and he has sufficient confidence in the Tathagata, sufficient devotion to him. This person too, Mahanama, is one who does not go to the hell, to hell, the animal realm or the realm of afflicted spirits to the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the netherworld.
1: All right. Thank you, Basim. So, so far, what we've talked about is we've talked about once you get to the first stage of enlightenment, you're no longer going to be reborn in the lower realms of hell, animal or afflicted spirits. But here the Buddha is giving you another example, two other examples, actually, of individuals who can develop their practice to a certain extent they're not yet a stream enter but yet they're no longer reborn to the lower realms of hell animal realm or afflicted spirits and he gives these examples of people who don't have confidence in the buddha the teachings in the community and who have not cultivated certain qualities of mind they're not enlightened and they and in this case since they don't have confidence in the buddha the teachings of the community they're not a stream enter either but yet they can also get to the point where they've cultivated enough interest and ability of these other faculties that they can get to the point where they no longer are reborn in the lower realms. So that's what he's describing in both of these discourses of people other than a stream answer who are done with the lower realms. Questions on this chapter?
3: course, question this time to
1: All right, chapter 52.
3: Yes, if you don't
1: mind, uh, please, you can read this chapter. Sure. The seven factors of the fruit of stream entry. Monks, there are these six principles of cordiality that create love and respect and conduce to cohesion, to non-dispute, to harmony, and to unity. What are the six? Here, a monk maintains bodily actions or bodily acts of loving kindness, both in public and in private, towards his companions in the holy life. This is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect, conduces to cohesion, to non-dispute, to harmony, and to unity. Then he says exactly the same thing for verbal actions and exactly the same thing for mental actions. The fourth one, again, a monk uses things in common with his virtuous companions in the holy life. Without making reservations, he shares with them any gain of any kind that accords with the teachings and has been obtained in a way that accords with the teachings, including even the mere contents of his bowl. This too is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect and conduces to cohesion, to non dispute, to harmony and unity. So here he's talking about people who are giving and sharing. So he taught this for all of his students, including the ordained practitioners, to share the things that are given to them, including what's in their bowl, meaning their food, sharing it with other people. Again, a monk resides both in public and private, possessing in common with his companions in the holy life those virtues, moral conduct, that is unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unblotched, liberating, praised by the wise, not misunderstood, and leading to concentration. This too is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect and conduces to cohesion, to non-dispute, to harmony, and to unity. Here, this whole chapter, what the Buddha is talking about is, you know, what leads to blossoming of your relationships. That's what I call, you know, blossoming your personal and professional relationships. The Buddha is talking about it here in terms of creating love and respect and conduces to cohesion, non-dispute, to harmony, to unity. So. Here, he's in this particular one, he's talking about virtues or moral conduct. This is the right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And one of the things that we've talked about in other classes is how having good, wholesome moral conduct actually leads to an improved condition of mind. The Buddha doesn't just have the moral conduct as part of the Eightfold Path because he's trying to coerce people into functioning in a certain way or anything like that. But instead, when you practice good, wholesome moral conduct, your mind can be at ease, no longer feeling any fear or any guilt or any shame about how you're conducting yourself in the world. And this leads to concentration. You can see that here. Sometimes people ask me, you know, David, how do I improve my meditation and how do I improve the condition of my mind? If they talk about this, you know, I might talk about how to improve meditation itself, But I oftentimes explain how your moral conduct in daily life leads to improved meditation. And improved meditation leads to improved moral conduct. These things feed off of each other. Here you can see the Buddha explaining the same thing as the fifth aspect of this teaching. And then here, the sixth one, he talks about right view and having right view and that that also leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness because right view is understanding and practicing the four noble truths and by practicing in such a way that you're training your mind to accept this responsibility for your own feelings to eliminate the craving desire attachment so that you're eliminating this discontentedness that gets created in the mind this is going to lead to this blossoming of relationships this cohesion this non-dispute harmony and unity so the Buddha describes this as the six principles of cordiality, and this is what leads to blossoming in your relationships. Then the Buddha goes on and he describes more here. I don't know that we have time to go through every single aspect of this teaching, but I definitely did that in the description, an explanation of the part below this. I went through each individual aspect of this discourse and explained it one by one. So if you've read this prior to class, and you have any questions, let me know what questions you guys have.
3: The question is empty,
1: Sean. All right, so be sure you guys read this if you're interested in understanding more about this discourse that I explained it piece by piece here. And now we're in chapter 53, the last chapter of this volume of the book series.
3: Encourage settle and establish in the four factors of stream entry. Monks, those for whom you have compassion, and who think you should be heed. Headed. Whether friends or colleagues, relatives or kinsmen, these you should encourage, settle, and, st- and establish in the four factors of stream entry. What for? One. You should encourage settle and establish them in confirmed confidence in the buddha thus the perfectly enlightened one is an arahant perfectly enlightened accomplished in true wisdom and conduct fortunate knower of the worlds unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed teacher of heavenly beings and humans the enlightened one the fortunate one two you should encourage, settle, and establish them in confirmed confidence in the teachings. Thus, the teachings are well expounded by the perfectly lighted one, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, to be personally experienced by the wise. Three, you should encourage, settle, and establish them in confirmed confidence in the community. Thus, the community of the perfectly lighted one's disciples is practicing the wholesome way practicing the straight way practicing the true pr- way practicing the proper way that is the four pairs of persons the eight types of individuals this community of the perfect delight one's disciples is worthy of gifts worthy of hospitality worthy of offerings worthy of respectful salutation the unsurpassed field of merit for the world four you should ca- Encourage, settle, and establish them and confirmed confidence in the virtuous, virtues dear to the noble ones. Unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unbloodshed, liberating, praised by the wise, not misunderstood and leading to concentration. Those for whom you have compassion and who think you should be headed whether friends or colleagues, relatives or kinsmen, this you should encourage, settle and establish in these four
1: factors of stream entry. All right. Thank you, Bassem. So what the Buddha is essentially talking about here is that if you have people that are close to you, that you feel that would heed your advice and listen to the things that you have to share, the Buddha is saying that you should help them to and encourage them. You should settle them and establish them in these four aspects that are going to help improve the condition of their mind and the condition of their life. But what he's not saying here is he's not saying we should force people, we should uh, control people, that we should put all this pressure on people to learn and practice his teachings. But instead, he's using these really kind words of encourage and settle and establish. Essentially, if you have life partners or children or friends or family, uh, colleagues, people in your life, and someone's like really struggling with a personal problem, You might say, you know, the Buddha has teachings that can really help you with that. You know, you might just kind of suggest it to them. They're like, really? Like, yeah, you might be interested to explore the Buddhist teachings. And if you'd like some resources, I have some ways to share those with you if you like. And you just kind of offer them to them. And if they're like, no, that's okay, I'm fine. Like, all right. And you just kind of without craving, desire, attachment, you just kind of move on and you accept that since you know that you've offered it to them a few times or once here or there then you know like okay this person isn't interested and you just keep on focusing on your own practice so ensure that if you're choosing to encourage settle and establish others in these teachings that you're not doing it with craving desire attachment because if you have craving behind your encouragement people are going to feel like you're forcing them or you're pressuring them or you're pushing them into learning the Buddhist teachings, but what the Buddha is instead saying here is that now that you're learning these teachings, now that you see the improvement to the condition of your mind, now that you know that this is the truth, that you shouldn't just kind of selfishly keep it to yourself and hold on to it, but instead, where you see that people can benefit from it, maybe you give them a gift of this book, or maybe you suggest to them to join a Facebook group, or you send them a YouTube video or a podcast that can help them and if they reject it then you just have to be okay with that and be comfortable with that and then just know that okay this person is not interested and don't keep sharing with them you know 5 10 15 20 times trying to push them into it but if you share one or two things and they're not interested, then okay, you move on and you just accept that. But if they are interested and they're interested to understand more, or people start questioning you, you know, Miranda, you you seem so peaceful all the time. You know, I've noticed this real change over the last year in the way that you conduct yourself. What is that that, that's doing that? How did you do that? Well, rather than hold on to the teachings and hide the teachings, you instead, you know, encourage people to learn and practice. But you do that in a humble way without any kind of craving desire or attachment that's what the buddha is getting to here questions on this chapter
3: no more questions
1: all right well i'll just kind of thank all of you guys for your dedication and diligence to learning this volume five because it's quite a meaty book there's a lot of things in here with the Buddhist teachings related to stream entry. And that's a really nice accomplishment if somebody can get to the point of stream entry. And you'll notice and you'll observe the condition of the mind having moved into that mental state. And if you're not there yet, it's okay because this is a life practice. It's a journey. You're not in a race with anyone. You're not in a competition with anyone. You're working towards this goal as your own independent practice. And this book is a book that will help you get there, but you need to learn all the others and get help and seek guidance with all the other books before you can just jump into this book and actually attain stream entry. And then the remaining books that are part of this book series are also helping you get to stream entry. So even though this particular book is here as the volume five, It's not to say that you should be a stream enterer by this time. It's just here in the book series to kind of help you understand what it takes to get to stream entry. And then the teachings that we're going to be sharing as part of the other volumes of this book series are helping you move in that direction towards stream entry as well. So the next book that we're going to be exploring volume six is the natural law of gamma. This is where the Buddha connects his teachings, and the causes and conditions or the consequences of what happens to us in life through the natural law of Gama, And you can see the truth for yourself that, as he shares his teachings on this, this particular book has consolidated some really important teachings related to this natural law of Gamma. So if you guys would like to read chapters one through ten for next week and then come to class with any questions that you have. And for anybody who's joining us for the first time, you can download these going to buddhadailywisdom.com, click on the button for free books, and you'll see volume six there. So thank you all for joining for today's class. Next class is next Saturday, where we'll do all 10 chapters. Tomorrow, Sunday, in the group learning program, we're in volume one, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. We're in chapter 17 in this book, and that's the chapter on Eliminating Fears. And there, I'll be sharing with you how to eliminate fears from the mind. And then next Wednesday, we'll be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So you're welcome to attend either tomorrow, Wednesday, or Saturday, perhaps all of those, if you would like to join in for any of those classes. So have a really lovely rest of your day. We'll see you in a future class. Take care. Thank
0: you for listening to this podcast.